Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. So, I am so excited for this new study. I know the enemy is also excited because he's been doing everything he can to dismantle What's going on this morning? Our drum machine, drum set Jocelyn played wouldn't come on today, so she couldn't play, and now we're having technical difficulties and stuff. So you know, anytime stuff going is going wrong, and you're under attack of the enemy, you're doing something right. Because anything that makes the devil mad makes God happy, right? And vice versa. So uh, we're excited for what is going on today. We're going to pray real quick, and then we're going to get into it. Lord God, we just thank you for your mercy and grace. God, I thank you. That you take our weakness and you pour your spirit on it. And God, you still do miraculous things. God, I thank you that your grace and mercy is oh so evident. I thank you for the words and just that, that last song that your grace is so free. And because we place our faith and trust in Christ, you crown us with grace and mercy every day. You don't hold us accountable for all of our sins, God, but you crown us with love and tender mercy. That's what your psalm says, Lord. And so we just thank you for your love. God, we thank you for this new journey that we're going to begin looking at, God. And I just thank you for the message that you have for us each and every day to encourage us, to build us up, to strengthen us, to give us hope, to help us endure when life is difficult, when circumstances are hard, when the world seems like it's going crazier and crazier. God, you have something for us to help us to hold on because we know that one day Jesus is going to return. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And God, so we just say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Bless us here, Lord. Holy Spirit, fill this place. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, a mind that understands, and a heart ready to believe everything that you have for us today. And all God's people said... Amen and amen. So I have always been fascinated with the subject of prophecy. And early in my, my Christian walk, it was, it was right around the time like Left Behind started coming out. And, and everybody was talking about what, whether or not you're going to be one of those left behind. And just kind of like fearful that one day you'd wake up and everyone in your house would be gone. But you'd see all the beds made and all the clothes neatly folded, you know, on the, on the side. Or you'd go to school and... You'd be the only one walking in and nobody else would be around because you had ingrained in your mind this imagery that you didn't want to be one of those who was left behind. And so that, that always fascinated me and drove me to kind of study what does the Bible say about things to come. And uh, even carried on into college, learning about what the Bible was talking about when it talked about the end of time. But recently, it's kind of shifted from prophecy regarding the end of days to more so the day-to-day -day prophecy of just hearing God's voice, speaking his word into people's lives, calling them into their divine destiny, and encouraging them to take advantage of those divine appointments and those divine moments that he has so that we don't just read about a supernatural life, we can live a supernatural life. So there's so much more to prophecy than just what is going to happen at the end of the world. But as I was pressing into what God would have us to study, and just with everything happening around in this chaotic world, it seems just like now is the perfect time to kind of unpack what God has been telling us for 2,000 years and, and really begin to just lead me to teach through this book 
and just pull out the messages he left to encourage us in this day and age. And for those of you who, who like short and sweet, I'm sorry, but this is not going to be short and sweet. The last series was like three weeks long, like that was good. This is going to be a journey because this, there have been, I, I don't know, probably more books written on the subject of this particular book than in more writings, more, more things come out about prophecy and revelation, and there's so many different ways people see this and interpret it. There's no way we could get through all of this in a lifetime. Let, it, let alone uh, just a couple of weeks. So we're going to take a deep dive, and I think it's going to be really exciting. We're going to look at the nuances and see what, how it connects to the Old Testament. One of the uh, books I've been really loving right now is the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. This is a book by uh, Dr. Michael Heiser. He has a podcast called The Naked Bible Podcast. And he took about a year in, to go through the Old Testament and the book of Revelation and what he did was he took all the show notes from that podcast and he typed them up into a book. And that's what this is. And it's an incredible resource. Tons of stuff. Tons of information. So if you're interested in the book of Revelation at all, I would highly recommend picking up that book. And I'm sure many of the quotations and, and such will be out of that during our study. Uh, but along this journey, I'm really asking the Lord two things. I'm asking God, what are you saying through John? When we read the text, when we read scripture, what is it you're actually saying? And then secondly, what does that mean for us today? So we're not, we're not here to like build a timeline and say, here's how the end of the world is going to trans, you know, like transpire. Here's what's going to happen. What we're saying is, God, you left this message about the end. What are you saying so we can understand it? And then how does it apply to me today? What, what can I pull from it that can encourage my faith and help me live a more God-glorifying life as I wait expectantly for Jesus Christ to return? So that's kind of our approach in this. Now, I don't, have you ever thought about this? I know many people ask this question. Do you ever wonder why Jesus never wrote a book of the Bible? Have you ever thought about that? Like, we have all these books about Jesus, and here he, like, spent all of his time teaching and, and, and giving messages as he was walking the earth. Do you ever wonder why he didn't himself write a book? Like, I've thought about that. Many have asked this question, and I think there might be a couple of reasons. Because back in his day, it wasn't unknown for well-known teachers to have scribes follow them around and write down the things that they would say, or they would dictate to people uh, messages or, or sermons that they would write down for them and publicize in that day and age. But I think the first reason why Jesus doesn't write a gospel or didn't write a gospel or a book himself is because he is the word of God and he doesn't need to prove himself or he doesn't need to get validity from us in writing a book. He is the word. Our responsibility is to hear what he says and then to hold on to it. It's not his responsibility to make us hold on to or preserve his word. He is the word. The second thing, I think, is because the question's a little misleading. Because even though we don't have a gospel or a New Testament book entitled by Jesus' name, like we do for others, like Peter and John and Timothy, and in the books that Paul wrote, the book of Revelation is a direct transmission from Christ to John about the things that would take place in the end. 
In Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, uh, this is how the book begins. And again, John receives this, this message from Christ through visions, through direct um, transmission, through oral transmission, direct dialogue. And here's how the book opens. It says, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the events that must soon take place. He sent an angel to present this revelation to his servant John, who faithfully reported everything he saw. This is his report of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what we have in the book of Revelation is not just the captured teachings of Christ like we have in the Gospels. Like what Matthew saw or what Matthew heard or what John saw and what John heard or Luke. I think it's important to understand that this is a direct revelation of Jesus Christ to John himself. As if Christ was speaking to John and John was writing down, taking dictation from Christ. And I think it's important we understand this because one of the reasons why Christ did this, I believe in my whole heart, is because many people have a skewed vision of what Jesus is like. They have a skewed understanding of what the Lord is like. If you think about many people today, many people view Jesus like the suffering servant. If you look at their house, what's, still, what's on their wall? It's the cross. And often the figure of Jesus is on the cross. Because when we think of Christ, we think of the meek and lowly servant that came, the lamb that came to take away the sins of the world. But Jesus is so much more than the lamb. We forget that he's not just a lamb. He's not just a suffering servant. He's a conquering king. He's not just the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. He's also the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so if you only look at Christ through the lens of the gospels, through the lens of the lamb, you only get one side of the picture. You only get one part of the picture of Christ. And so he is not just the lamb. He's the conquering king. He didn't just come full of grace and forgiveness to be the atonement for sin. He is also coming again. And when he comes again, it's not atonement for sin he's going to bring. It's justice and judgment on sin that he's going to bring. And so this book is not called the book of Revelation, was what we often refer to it. It's really called the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Because it is all about revealing Christ. The word revelation means to lay bare or make naked or disclose a truth. To make something that was invisible now visible to all, to manifest. The book of Revelation is not just a book about the end times. It includes that. But the overall purpose of the book is to give us a full and complete revelation, understanding of who Jesus is, to reveal his glory to us. That's the point of the book. So this book brings everything together, the whole of Scripture, Old and New Testament, the narrative of the story, the whole of human history, past, present, and future. It all coalesces in this final epic of supernatural and apocalyptic future vision. And I want to say today up front, I know there, there are many different things that people talk about regarding the end times, including like things like the rapture of the church. 
I was listening to a podcast this week about, about the rapture, about end times, and the, the man who introduced the subject, he started off by saying, you know, today we're going to talk about the proven doctrine of the rapture. We're going to talk about the, the pure doctrine of the rapture of the church, or this part of the end times. And that kind of took me by surprise because nothing is proven when it comes to future events. Because they haven't happened yet. All we have is interpretation of what we believe is in the future events. And so if somebody has to start off their teaching by saying this is proven, this is pure, what are they doing? They're telling you that if you believe else a different way, you're in error. It's a way to manipulate people to believe that what you're teaching is true. And I think that if you have to start a teaching off that way, it proves the weakness of your argument. Your teaching should stand on its own. It should be backed by the scripture and not need a defense. And so I would just encourage you, anytime you're getting into end times teaching, anything talking about the end of days, if someone is telling you that this is the way, this is the only way it it's, can be understood, they are discounting volumes of scripture by people with more degrees than them, greater IQ and intelligence than them that disagree with them. So we're not here to say, here is the only way this is going to happen. We're saying, God, what are you saying? And what can we take away from what you're saying? Make sense? Awesome. So now, there was a time when Jesus revealed the fullness of his glory to his disciples. It's found in Matthew 17. If you have your uh, Bible with you, 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 can, uh, you can turn there or you can follow the notes on the Version Bible app. But in Matthew 17, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the three amigos, up to the top of Mount Hermon with him, and he revealed his glory to those disciples. It, the scripture talks about in a moment, his image, his, his visage changed from being an average, ordinary human being like we look at to being a being of light. His face glowed like the sun. It was this glorious moment where they were seeing with their own eyes the true nature of Jesus Christ, the fullness of his glory on the mountain. And it was so awesome that Moses and Elijah had to join in. They showed up, and they're talking to Jesus, and they're having this little powwow. And the disciples were like, dude, it's Moses, and it's Elijah, and Jesus. They were like so dumbfounded with what was going on. They, they asked the Lord if they should make these little altars and, and, and make this monument to remember this moment because it was so awesome. And after this moment, after Jesus just blows their mind, here's what he says about this revelation in Matthew 17, verse 9. It says, as they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what you've seen. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. In other words, the world is not ready for this information. I haven't accomplished everything I need to accomplish now. If you, if you tell them what you saw, they may make me or try to make me be a king now. And it's not time for that. This revelation of glory was for you, for you to know beyond a shadow of a doubt who I am. But keep this to yourself. When I'm risen from the dead, then you can tell people who I am. The first revelation had to be kept quiet because the world wasn't ready. 
But when Jesus appears to John as he's exiled as a political prisoner on this island called Patmos, he gives him the full revelation. And what does he do? He tells them to tell everyone. Tell everyone. Send this to the churches. Encourage everyone. Report this. And John was faithful and reported everything that was revealed. And it's interesting to note that as we go through this, what you're going to notice is that John never quotes a scripture. Over the Gospels, as Jesus is teaching, often he'll say, it is written. The, did not Elijah say, or is it not found in Elijah, or the prophet Jonah said, or the prophet Daniel said, Jesus would often quote scripture. John never quotes a scripture. But what he does is he makes allusions to scripture. And the scholars have noted that the reason why he does this is so that it will draw us back into the Word of God to discern or understand what is actually being discussed. And so what we'll see in this book is that John uses many different devices. He uses metaphors, poetry to describe real events and people that are later interpreted so we can understand what's being said. But he doesn't interpret everything that he sees. Not everything is interpreted. The illusions are made to draw us back into the Word of God so that we can see through Scripture what is being talked about. Now, some uh, teachers have tried to look at the book of Revelation and see, well, John was a first century man. He saw the future, and so he just described the future as best as he could, and they try to look at some of the supernatural events and interpret them in light of modern technology, which could be... Uh, what's being said, but often what many scholars today that teach on end times miss is they miss the Old Testament correlation. And what we have to remember is there is nothing new under the sun, right? John has his mind, has his frame of mind, has his, what is Jesus is teaching him, it comes from somewhere. It comes from the Word of God. And by looking at the book of Revelation through the lens of a first century person, if we can figure out what's in John's head as he's writing these things down, then we can better interpret what he's saying to make the text make more sense. And so the question that I have as I'm in this study is, because this is going to be a stretch for me, a challenge for me as well, the question I have is why should you go to such lengths to understand a book like this? Because I don't know if you've, if you've read this book, if you've taken the time to go through it and read it, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of nuts. And some people avoid it altogether because it scares them. They're like, man, I don't, I don't understand it. That seems pretty freaky. I, let's, not, let's not go there, right? Why go to such lengths to understand this book? Why stretch yourself when there's so many other things we could be talking about? The first thing I would say is because most importantly, I felt like the Lord is leading this. So we got to do what God is leading us to do. The second thing is that anything worth doing is going to stretch you. Anything worth doing is going to be difficult. It's going to stretch you. And when you're stretched, it gives you opportunity to grow. And I think all of us desire to grow deeper in our knowledge and understanding of the Word of God and what God has for us. But the third reason is actually found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. In verse 3, John writes this. He says, God blesses. Somebody say blesses. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. He blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says, for the time is near. 
There is a blessing on me for reading this to you. There's a blessing on you for listening to me read it. And there's a blessing on all of us for applying it to our lives and obeying what God tells us through this book. It's the only book of the Bible that has this promise. The only one. And I don't know about you, but I could use some blessing in my life. So if you're in need of some blessing, you better not miss a Sunday. We're just going to, we're going to go through this and we'll all be blessed. Blessing for you, for you, for you. We're all blessed, right? Blessings all around. But this is, this is awesome. Now, what's interesting to me also is that John here says the time is near. Another translation would say is close at hand. What is he talking about? The time is near for what? It's at hand for what? Well, what's at hand are the events that he said earlier that must soon take place. And when you read through, again, you read through the book of Revelation, there's a lot of chaos in there. There's a lot of stuff that happens. These events, both the chaos that unfolds and the return of Christ, will soon take place. Now, I don't know if Jesus gave John that or if that's kind of anecdote that he wrote prior to getting his message from Christ. But I think the word soon was not the right word. It's been 2,000 years since he's written this book. I think soon wasn't the optimum word to be used. But if you take a second to think about what he's saying and how he is correlating the truth, the first thing is that God, everything is relative to God. Everything is soon to God. Because God doesn't live in time. He lives outside of time. He created time. Peter said that a day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and to the Lord a thousand years is like a day. Time is relative to the Lord. So when God says something is soon, it's soon for him, may not be so soon for us. So when God gives you a personal promise, hey, I'm going to do this in your life, and you get the sense that God says soon, you just be better, be patient. That's, that's just, you know, we don't know how soon that's going to be. But nonetheless, God does use time, though he exists outside of time. He uses time to direct his ultimate plan across the world and for humanity. Now, Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven something very important. Matthew 28, 20. He tells his disciples to teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the what? Even to the end of the age. I am with you to the end of the age. The term age is a period of time. It's a measure of time. It's a unit of measure. So what's Jesus doing? He's giving us a clue as to the timing of the events that would soon take place because he knows how long it's going to be before God is going to give the word to come and fulfill all things that are promised. Now, what's been up for debate is how long an age is. We haven't fully understood that until recent years with new discoveries. Now, there were various dating systems that were used in the ancient world 
You had the Babylonian calendar, the Roman calendar. You had the Hellenistic calendar. You had all these ancient calendars that, that were around. Matter of fact, the Sumerian calendar was really popular. I think that people, if you remember 2012, what was supposed to happen in 2012? The world was supposed to come to an end, right? Because the Sumerians said that in 2012, or the Mayans said in 2012, the world was going to come to an end. So there have been all these calendars that have been around forever. But there was a calendar from a specific group of people that were known historically for being incredibly accurate prophets. So much so that Flavius Josephus, a Jewish historian, even noted that they were known for being accurate prophets. That was what was known to, about this group of people. They were the third group at the time of Christ, a Jewish sect called the Essenes. In the Bible, we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, the ones we don't read about, they're referred to as the way. They were called the Essenes. They're the ones that maintained the library at Qumran where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what we have discovered since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls is not only were they accurate prophets. Matter of fact, according to their calendar, they accurately prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus came that he would have died in 32 A.D. They, have, they are incredibly accurate prophets. They have a track record that's beyond me. Like, if you want to do an awesome study, look at what the Essenes and what's being found about the Essenes in the, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls. But according to Josh Peck and Ken Johnson, they've done extensive work deciphering their calendar and making it uh, palatable for, for us who uh, don't have time to you know, invest in all of that. They put together this, this website, and I pulled this information right off the website, they have, the Essenes basically broke down all of human history into ages. And we have a, a chart we'll put up here on the, uh, the screen. Our next one. So this is the timeline of human history according to the Essenes. They believe that from year 1 to 2000 was the first age. Their ages are 2,000 years in, in sp expanse. So every age of the Essenes was 2,000 years. The last 50 years of every 2,000-year period was called a Jubilee period. It was the transitional period between the last age and the next age. So year 1 to 2,000, or 3925 B.C. to 1925 B.C., was the first age called the Age of Creation. The second age, or the Age of Torah, this was the time of Abraham and Moses, it was year 2001 to 4000, or 1926 B.C. to A.D. 75. What happened in A.D. 75? That was the destruction of the temple in Israel. Signified the end of the age of Torah. No temple, no law. Right? Jesus died. He prophesied the temple would be destroyed. The veil was torn. And now we enter into the new age. And what is that age? It's the age of grace. From 4,001 to 6,000 years of human history, which for us would be A.D. 75 to the year 2075. And then, of course, the last age would be the age of the kingdom. Interesting enough, it's only 1,000 years in length, which is the length of time we're told in the book of Revelation we would reign with Christ on earth for 1,000 years. And so this is their calendar. So we would be found during that period of the age of grace from year 75 A.D. up to year 2075. And so I know this material is outside of the Bible. It's not specifically in Scripture. Um, so it's not something we hold to as being a, a, a proven truth. But it can inform us of maybe what was in the mind of the Jews at the time that John was writing. And it, and it carries some weight because of what Paul writes 
in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, this is what Paul says to the church of Ephesus. He says that in the dispensation, somebody say dispensation. That in the dispensation of the fullness of what? Fullness of times. It's plural. Not time, times. So what are we talking about? We're tying, talking about periods of time. We're talking about the way we are calculating, the way we are organizing human history, that in the fullness of times, God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. So God's using the fullness of times for a purpose. What is that purpose? To gather all things unto Christ. And how is he doing it? He's doing it through what Paul calls dispensations. A dispensation means to stu means stewardship, organization, management, or administration. So what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians is that God has instituted a way to govern time or seasons. And more importantly, what applies to us today is what Paul refers to his special commissioning as an apostle in Ephesians chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, it says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles... If ye have heard of the what? The dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when we, ye read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So what Paul is telling us, he's saying that my special commissioning from, from God, from Christ, it is not just to be a missionary to the Gentiles, it's to be the dispensation of the grace of God. It is to be the administer, the propagator of this dispensation of grace that God has designed for this period of time. And if you remember about the ages, what is the age we're living in now? Go ahead and throw that chart back up. From 75 AD to 2075 is the age of grace. The period of time, the organization that God used to propagate the gospel message. What was Paul doing? He was sharing the gospel all over the known world. And what was the core of the message? Grace of God has come. The law has been fulfilled. Christ fulfilled the law, the age of Torah. He fulfilled it. He's instituted a new age. It's the age of grace. And I'm sharing that gospel message that you might have grace and forgiveness by trusting in Christ as our Lord and Savior. So Paul is affirming the transitionary period between law and grace, just as the Essenes, that hundreds of years before this ever took place. It's pretty remarkable. Again, the age of grace started roughly at 75 AD after the destruction of the temple. And what's interesting is, again, the last is only a thousand years in length just as we see in the book of Revelation. Could this be God's official timeline? It could. We don't know for sure. But just like God created in six days and rested on the seventh, on the Sabbath, here predicted by the Essenes is that there would be 6,000 years of human history as God is working to bring all things under Christ. And then the last 1,000 years, the age of the kingdom, would be the Sabbath rest when Messiah brings peace to the earth. It perfectly fulfills what the scripture tells us. Now, I know some of you probably have this verse in your head. You're like, well, I thought 
Jesus said, no one knows the day or the hour when, when he's going to return. And that's true. Did I say a day or an hour? I didn't nail August 25th, 19, you know, 2075. Like, we didn't. We're not date setting. Jesus did say, you will know the time and the season when these things will happen. You will see the signs when these things will begin to happen. So we can know that things are close. We can know things are at hand, are near, by the signs that are given to us in Scripture without setting dates. And if the Essenes' track record holds true, and our modern interpretation of their writings based on those understandings are true, then that means the Jubilee period, the last 50 years that transitions us from this age to the next, will begin in year 2025, which is three years away. That means the next 53 years could be the period of time we transition from this age to the last age that God brings all of the things of the book of Revelation, the tribulational period, everything into fulfillment. So we're living in some pretty exciting times. And now, this shouldn't cause fear or alarm. This should bring hope. When you speak about the end times, when you speak about what God is doing, and we look at the, the end time events, and I know we, we see the things that are, we see in the movies, like if you've watched Left Behind or anything about Armageddon or the last days, there's all this destruction and chaos, and, and many people get afraid, they get fearful, but that's not the response Jesus tells us to have. In Luke 21, verses 27 and 28, here's what he says. He says, then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on the cloud with power and great glory. When all these things begin to happen, stand and look up, for your salvation is near. When you begin to see the events in Scripture being, being played out in everyday life, this is not your time to run and hide and build your bunker and, and like gather up all, all your supplies and bury your head in the sand. It says, no, look up. Because that means Jesus is coming soon. Like, like my soon back when John wrote this wasn't so soon. But when you start seeing this stuff happen, it is at the door. It is, it's soon. And Jesus, when he, when he says this, he's actually quoting from Isaiah 66, 14, when Isaiah was writing to the children of Israel about the last days, about the time of the bringing in of the kingdom, as he talks about birth pains and, and these natural events, these things happening, leading up to the time Messiah would come. Here's what Isaiah says. It's in verse 14. He says, when you see these things, your heart will what? It will rejoice. You will flourish like the grass. Why? Because everyone will see the Lord's hand of blessing on his servants and anger on his enemies. The servants of the Lord will see blessing and the enemies of the Lord will experience his anger. This is the tone of the book of Revelation. It's not an ominous, dark book. No matter what happens on the earth, everyone will see the Lord's hand of blessing on his servants. And if you are a child of God, if you are a follower of Jesus, if your hope is in the Lord, that means his hand of blessing is going to be on you. Which is why blessed are those who read the words of this prophecy, and obey what it says. There's a blessing on you because the time of the end isn't fearful for us. It's exciting because of what is to come for us. So that is the introduction. 
We're going to focus the rest of our time on one singular verse in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. And it's important that we focus here because it sets the tone for the rest of the chapter and on in the rest of the book. Because so much is being signaled here by John to these early Christians. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, here's what John begins to write. He says, this letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Right now, he is writing to seven literal churches that actually existed in what's now modern-day Turkey. These are real believers. At the time, John is writing this book. And he begins by greeting these believers in his book this way. He says, grace and peace. Somebody say grace and peace. Grace and peace. I think that's a great way to start off a greeting. Because I need grace in this age of grace. And I really would love peace in the day of chaos. Right? So grace and peace to you from the one who is, who always was, and who is yet or still to come. Now, you and I, we don't have the luxury of being someone like John who grew up in a day that ancient languages are normal, everyday vernacular or speech. I don't know anyone in here that knows ancient Greek or ancient Hebrew just naturally. right? So we are reading English translations of ancient languages, which means there are nuances in the text, in the writing, that we completely miss because we don't have that same mindset. But what scholars do, and I appreciate these scholars who have spent years of their lives digging into these things and bringing it out for us because it enables us to see stuff we wouldn't otherwise been able to see. But John here, he doesn't use the normal Christian greeting that you see elsewhere in Christian writing when the apostles were writing letters to the church and even extra biblical writings. This is not a normal or usual greeting. We would see a normal greeting using grace and peace would be connected to our Father or, you know, grace and peace to the, from the Father through Jesus Christ would be a normal greeting. We see this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 2. Quickly, Paul just says, writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, may God our Father give you grace and peace. This was the common greeting that the writers of the New Testament and the Christian fathers would use when they would greet one another in their letters. But Paul doesn't, or John doesn't use this greeting. Instead, John modifies it and uses a very peculiar name or title for God that isn't used anywhere else in all of Christian literature. This is the first time, the first place, this title is used for God in all of the Bible and in all of Christian literature. Well, we don't have it listed anywhere else. He refers to God as the one who is, who was, and who is yet to come. And why this is peculiar, most notably, is because of the Greek words that are translated as the first part, the God who is. Somebody say the God who is. So the first part of that phrase, the God who is, it's translated from the Greek, and these are the words ho-on. Now, why this is weird is because there is a grammatical error in this. He doesn't use proper Greek when he writes these words out. And why that's weird is because he uses proper Greek everywhere else, which tells scholars that, that he understands how to write Greek properly. It's not 
benign to or unknown to him how to write well, that he's just a bad, you know, uh, writer. No, he's a great writer. But whenever he makes a mistake, they have discovered that it's signaling something. It is to draw your mind or your attention elsewhere so that you can see actually the messaging that he's trying to convey when he makes a mistake. They're intentional mistakes. In the, the, in the ancient times, the Greeks became the dominant culture in the ancient world. So much so that even in Israel, many of the, the Jewish people were actually speaking Greek and not their native language, Hebrew. Or they could speak it, they just couldn't read it. Have you ever met somebody like that? Like grew up in a Spanish home, they could speak Spanish, but they couldn't read it because they, they learned it orally and not, and not with, with writing. This was very common. And so many of them could read and speak Greek and not Hebrew. And so what the Hebrew scholars did is they translated the Old Testament into Greek, and that's what's called the Greek Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there is a place where the same two words, ho'on, are misspelled in the same way. And so whenever the readers of the New Testament would read that in the book of Revelation, that would signal them, hey, where have I seen that before? Where have I, have I seen this mistake? Or have I seen this written this way before? And it takes them back to Exodus chapter 3, verses four, verse 14. Out of all of the 300-plus quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament, two-thirds of them actually come out of the Greek Septuagint. So it was very common for the New Testament writers, our church fathers, to be quoting from the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so when they read this, they're like, oh, I remember where that was listed. That was listed back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. This is the moment where the burning bush is on fire and God is calling Moses to lead his people uh, out of Egypt and into the promised land. And Moses, as he's getting this, this charge by God, he's freaking out. He's like, what if they don't believe me? What if, they, what if I go down there and say, you know, God said, you know, you guys need to come with me. And they're like, well, what God sent you? Who am I supposed to tell them sent me to you to lead you out of Egypt? And here's what God says in Exodus 3.14. Says God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Somebody say, I am. I am is the most holy name for God. This is Yod Hey Vav Hey or Yahweh. This is the Tetragrammaton. This is what they call it in, in uh, university studies. It is the most holy name for God. It is only comprised of four vowels. Now, in describing this name to Moses, God is telling Moses, when you tell the people of Israel that I am has sent you, he's basically saying, you tell them, I am who I am. There's no way to describe me that's adequate. I just am. Like it, anything you would try to describe would fall short. I am, I am. If you literally translate that into English, it literally means I exist to exist. Or I am or I is, the God who is. So when John starts off this, for the God who, was, who is, who was, and is yet to come, when he uses ho'on, it's referring back to this moment where God called Moses, and he says, tell them the God who is sent me to you. He's using this way to translate the divine name to hearken readers back to the first revelation of the God 
who is to the Jewish people as God is getting ready to unveil another revelation. He's getting our attention to understand that when God called Moses to reveal that salvation was coming to the people, they would come out of tribulation and into the promises of God. John is referring us in this simple grammatical mistake to realize that God is getting ready to bring his own children out of a tribulation and into the promised land. And who is it that's going to do it? It's the God who is. And John doesn't stop there. He doesn't just stop with ho'on. He goes on to write who is, who was, and is yet to come. This title is also peculiar because these statements, the, the God who was and is yet to come, they were used commonly in the ancient world to refer to deities, to refer to other gods. But that specific title, the God who was and is and yet to come, was never before this moment as well ever used to refer to the Christian or Jewish God in all of ancient literature or writing. It was never used for God or Yahweh God, the God who was, is, and is yet to come. But there was another God, dominant in the Greek culture at the time, who was well known by this very same title. This phrase was commonly used for this specific God. Um, I got a picture to show you up on the screen. It's for the Oracle Dodona in the ancient Greek world. It's one of the oldest oracles in human history. An oracle is simply a place or a person that is known for divine revelation, where people could go and get divine wisdom from the gods. So this was a pagan place where they would go and offer worship. They would receive divine wisdom from their gods. And this specific one at Dodona is known for the worship of the god Zeus. And according to uh, ancient writer Pausanias, he wrote this, that first reports for Zeus that the uh, priestesses of Dodona would commonly call out Zeus, and they would use this title, Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus shall be, Almighty Zeus. Zeus was, Zeus is, and Zeus shall be, Almighty Zeus. At the time John is receiving this revelation, he's writing this title for God, which has never been done before. He's using or borrowing this title that was commonly known for Zeus to use it for Yahweh. So what is happening here? What is, what is he actually doing by doing this in this moment? I believe that there are is a specific reason that he did that. There are other terms for Zeus that were used also. Zeus was referred to as the Almighty or the, the, uh, the Most High. He was referred to as the first and the last. Other common titles we'll see in the book of Revelation. But the question is, why is it important for, for us to understand what John is signaling with this title? Because just as Ho'an referred us back to Revelation 3.14, he's referring us back to what we know about Yahweh, God, as God began this covenant with the nation of Israel. In Isaiah 43.10, here's what Isaiah writes. It says, You are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You've been chosen to know me. Believe in me and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. Somebody say, there is no other God. There is no other God. There never has been. 
and there never will be. This is what God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. In Deuteronomy 4.39, this is what God speaks through Moses. He says, remember this and keep it firmly in mind. The Lord is both God in heaven and on earth, and there is no other God. There is no other God. What God has attested of himself is that Yahweh God, he is the first God, he is the only God, and there is not any other gods coming after Yahweh. No new gods are going to be created. There weren't any before him. There aren't any coming after him. He is the only one. He is supreme over all things, maker and Lord of heaven and earth. And this Zeus guy might be self-proclaiming that he's supreme, but there's only one God, and the I Am is that God. The Ho'on, the one who is, is the one and only God. And so what he's doing here is he's, he's signaling that in this moment, by using this title for Zeus, he's saying, Beloved, you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice between Yahweh and Zeus. And it's an important decision because continuing on in the book, we're going to see that the identity of Zeus is revealed when he writes a letter to the, the church of Smyrna. The Lord writes this letter through John to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2.9. He says, I know you're suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they're Jews, but they're not, and their synagogue belongs to who? Their synagogue belongs to Satan. These people opposing the Christians in Smyrna, either they were of Jewish descent and they didn't believe in Christ, or they weren't Jewish and they were pretending to be Jews. Either way, they weren't authentic people of God. Their synagogue belonged to Satan. The place where they worshipped, the place where they, they dedicated themselves belonged to Satan. In the city of Smyrna, on Mount Pegasus, was a temple to the god Zeus. Zeus and Satan are one and the same. Satan has many titles. Matter of fact, the term Satan isn't even his name. It's a description. It means the accuser. This deity, the enemy of God, goes by many names. He ta has taken many forms in the ancient world. And here, Jesus reveals the identity of who this Satan character is. It's the same power behind Zeus. So just as the Jewish believers would have known Ho'on referred, uh, referred them back to Yahweh, the Greek Christians of the day and time would have known this title, who is, who was, and is yet to come, referred to Zeus, and likewise the chief opposition to Yahweh God in all the world. This is the chief opposition to God. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, Satan, who's the God of this world. Somebody say the God of this world. Satan is the God of this world. He's blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message. What Satan has done, he's blinded people from the revelation of who Christ is. This Zeus character, this Satan figure in the known world, this king opposer to God Almighty, has been working to divide God and distance God from his people by blinding unbelievers and keeping people from understanding and believing the truth. He's the true enemy of God who lies to accomplish his goals and purposes in the world. He's the power behind the world system, the power behind the influence of the world. That's why the scripture calls him the God of this world. He uses his influence to blind people to the truth. James, in James chapter 4, verse 4, he says, You adulterers, 
Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of who? An enemy of God. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What is James saying? He's saying you can't play both sides. You either pledge your allegiance to Yahweh, you give your heart to Jesus, or you let your heart chase after the world. You can't please both God and the world. You can't have two masters. So that's what spiritual adultery is. It's saying you believe in Christ, say you're dedicated and committed to Christ, but yet your heart is fleeing after and being unfaithful to the things of this world and the influence of the God of the world. So by calling us back to the burning bush moment, to think about what God has said about himself, that he is the God who is, and then applying this title for Zeus to Yahweh, John is signaling to us that there is a battle about to go down, a battle of epic supernatural proportions, just like what happened in Egypt when God stood toe-to-toe against the gods of Egypt and they crumbled beneath his feet. God is getting ready to rage war, uh, wage a world war against the God of this world. And John is calling you to choose a side, just like Joshua did in Joshua 24, 15. He said, if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates? Or will it be the gods of the Amorites and those whose land you now live? But as for me and my family, we'll serve the Lord. John is signaling to us there is a choice. It's either God or this world. Satan is a poser. This god of thunder is trying to steal God's thunder. He's tried to raise his throne above God's throne and steal worship from God by manipulating and twisting the truth. But no matter how hard Satan tries, no matter how many people he's convinced, Satan can never be God. There is only one God. There is only one who is, who was, and is yet to come. And seeing that this book is not just about end times, but it's about the revelation of Jesus, about Jesus being revealed in all of his glory, John does something else also pretty significant with this title, with this phrase, down in verse 8 of chapter 1, as Jesus is speaking to him in this vision, here's what Jesus says about himself. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I'm the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. This is what Jesus attests about himself. He uses the same language about himself that John uses to describe the Father. But yet Jesus takes it a step further. He calls himself the Alpha and the Omega. This can be translated as the first and the last. Jesus is taking on Zeus too. He's like, no, Zeus ain't nothing. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. So now John is attributing the same title to Jesus as he did the Father. What's he doing here? He's saying, you know that God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, you know the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush who rescued the children of Israel, the one who was with Joshua in the campaign to slay the giants, the one who, who uh, empowered Samson in all of his strength, the one who gave Gideon the great victory, the one who led David to kill the giant and lead the nation of Israel into freedom, the one who empowered Elijah to do signs, wonders, and miracles, the one who uh, is the very same God 
is the Father. This one is also Jesus, because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. God Almighty is the one who is, was, and yet to come. And Jesus is, is, was, and yet to come. They are one and the same. He was dead, but is now alive forevermore. He is the first and the last. Jesus is Yahweh God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. He's the one who Isaiah said and declared, he declared the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46.10 says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. Jesus and Yahweh are one and the same. Jesus has the authority over heaven and earth. Jesus is the ancient of days. He's the wisdom before time. And he declared what would happen in the end all the way from the beginning when he created heaven and earth. And the question is, what is it that he declared? What is it that he foretold? At the moment sin entered into the world and mankind fell and the kingdom of darkness began to take over, Jesus looked at the serpent and here's what he said. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, but you will strike his heel. In other words... You're going to slow him down, but he's going to crush you. You're going to slow him down, but he's going to utterly defeat you. The prophecy, the beginning of the end, is the final confrontation, the final war between heaven and hell, where the powers of darkness will come against the Son of Man, who is the Son of God, where the powers of darkness will be completely and utterly destroyed. And Jesus will be revealed in ultimate victory. And when's it going to happen? It's going to happen during a time of distress on the earth when all hope seems lost and the enemy seems to have had the upper hand. It is then that sudden destruction will come upon them. And the one true God who rightfully adorns the title of the one who is and was and yet to come will be victorious. I like what Michael Heiser writes in his book. He says, John wants the readers to know that God, the God of Moses, the God of Israel, the one who is and was and is coming, will deliver believers under persecution as he delivered the remnant of Israel in the past. And more than that, this same God became a man in Jesus Christ. He is also the first and the last who died but yet lives. He has the keys to everlasting life and death, and that one is on the side of of believers. The God of all gods is on the side of believers. He's coming to deliver believers, to give us grace and peace, favor and blessing while bringing judgment and wrath on his enemies. And John is signaling through these opening words, beloved, comfort is coming. Comfort is coming. In John 16, Jesus said, I've told you all this, that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you may have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. The day is coming when our salvation will come riding on the clouds. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us. We'll pass from death to life. 
The same power that held him as he fulfilled his purpose will give us strength to carry on and endure until our salvation is fully come, until what Paul writes in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8, we receive our full rights as adopted sons and daughters of the King of Kings. But beloved, I just believe the Lord wants to encourage you today, no matter where you are in this life, no matter what you're going through, what your struggle is, your trial will not last forever. You are not alone. For the one who is and was and is yet to come, the Lord your God and Savior Jesus Christ, the first and the last, he's holding all things together. He wants to remind you today that before even the vision was unpacked, he declared the end from the beginning. Before we even read about the stress of the nations, the troubles coming on the world, he wants to remind you of what you have in Christ Jesus. And I'm going to leave you with this, Colossians chapter 1, 14 through 22, as we meditate on the glory revealed in Christ Jesus. It says, the one who purchased our freedom, amen, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. He's supreme over all creation, for through him God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones and kingdoms, rulers and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He's the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, that through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God, you who were his enemies, separated by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he's reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he's brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. You, who were once an enemy, have now been brought close and stand holy before the King of Kings. You know, our freedom for this nation was won many years ago. And we work every day to hold on to that freedom. Seems like our freedoms are constantly being challenged. But you know, that freedom can be taken away. That was one in the American Revolution. That freedom can be taken away. But no one can take the freedom that Jesus won for you on the cross. Neither height nor depth, nor principality or power, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is founded in Christ Jesus. Right now, where you stand is in the presence of the Lord, blameless, without a single fault. No matter what you endure in this life, when you see Jesus, when you stand before him, it's not for condemnation or for rebuke. It's for comfort and reward. Oh, what a blessed day that will be when we see him face to face. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes as the prayer music begins to play. What the depth of revelation in just a few short words. 
signals us today that he is who he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows your need. He knows what you're going to think before you think it. He knows what you're struggling through, what you're going through, and he's already declared the end from the beginning. And no matter what you're going through today, what season you're about to go through, be encouraged, beloved, because Jesus is the first and the last. He is the lamb, but he's also the lion. He's in control, and he's holding all things together as he's holding you up. He's holding you together. And no matter how chaotic things become, no matter how life looks like it's falling apart, he's working all things together. He has a plan, and his will is being done right now because he's declared the end from the beginning. He already has it worked out. And in the end, for those who are faithful and believe, we're promised that we will shine like the sun as you dwell in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. And this is a promise if you hold on, if you keep the faith, if you stay the course, walk faithfully in your calling as a child of God. If you choose this day who you will serve, if you choose life by trusting in the Lord, putting your hope in Jesus, for beloved, he is coming again. He is coming again. He is coming again. And that's our great hope. When the challenge begins and the enemy rises up to take its stand against Yahweh God, there will be no competition. The enemy can't stand against the power of the Almighty. He is supreme and he is the only one like him. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, eternal, self-existent. And he's revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And what I love most about the fact this letter is written to his beloved, to the church, is that that same God is on your side. That same God is with you even now until the end of the age. That same God has comfort, grace, and peace for you. And to receive it, we simply make a choice. God, I'm turning away from the God of this world and every device and influence he offers. And I'm kneeling before the King of Kings to give you my heart and my life. And every day, I will come boldly before your throne because I know as your child, I'll find the help that I need to face every circumstance. Beloved, if you're here today, if you never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's really just a choice between who you're going to serve. Are you going to serve him, the one who loved you 
and died for you, to forgive you, to redeem you, to create something new in you, to give you hope and a future, help you discover the purpose of your life, or are you going to keep following the God of this world who wants to steal, kill, and destroy? It's an easy decision for me. It's yes, Lord. Here I am, imperfect and broken, but I'm yours. I might be a mess, but I'm God's mess because God can do more with me in my mess than I can do on my own. And maybe you're here today and you've got some struggles in your life, you've got some challenges, and you just need that encouragement to know that God has already proclaimed the end from the beginning. This too shall pass. It won't last forever. The one who is and was and is yet to come, he was with you before it started. He's with you in the process now, and he will be holding you when it's over. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And we just encourage you with that today. You can trust in the Lord. And my prayer is, is that as we dive into the revelation of Christ, as we see his word for us, that our hearts would lean in and we'd become even greater worshipers because of the greater revelation that we see. Because one day, beloved, when we're before him, We'll never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is yet to come. We'll worship for all eternity because there'll be no words that will adequately justify how we're feeling. We'll be so overwhelmed with love and goodness. And my prayer is as we begin living out that life of worship even now. So Holy Spirit, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this book. I thank you for the message. And I thank you, God, for what you're going to do in us through it. And as we go into a time of response, Lord, I pray that your word would rise up, that you would release prophetic words, you release your healing hand, that your comfort and your peace would begin to flow even now. In Jesus' name. Just stay in an attitude of prayer for a few moments. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward. If God has been speaking to you, if there's some stuff you're going through and you'd love to receive prayer, we invite you to come down to the front and receive prayer. If you've got pain in your body or dealing with illness or sickness, we believe God heals. We believe there's power in the name of Jesus. You can come and receive prayers for healing. Whatever God is speaking to your life, you come for the next few moments. And then we'll pray and we'll be dismissed. From all of us at Vertical Life Church, we want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you, and God bless.